Thank you, George, for uh, having me. Thank you, faculty and administration staff. Uh, thank you, students, for being here. It's, it's great to be here. I, I did a little advanced research on the school, listened to some podcasts from chapel services, and I thought this is a good place to be. So I'm glad to be here. I'm grateful to be here, and I'm excited to see what will happen in the next couple of days. Before I begin properly, let me do two things. One, just as a, a brief bio note, I grew up in Guatemala. Uh, a good chunk of my life as a missionary kid, and uh, that was a wonderful formative experience. I'll, talking, I'll talk a little bit more about that tonight and tomorrow. And uh, then I spent five years in Vancouver at Regent College and uh, had a wonderful, wonderful experience there. So I have been blessed and enriched by this country and, and the cultures of this country. And, uh, and now I am down in North Carolina where they care about basketball very, very much. <laughs> So uh, this is my fourth time to Toronto, by the way. I, I came twice in the 90s for a Canadian Theological Students Conference, and then I came once in the early 2000s for the Toronto Film Festival. So this is my fourth. I need to come back another time so I can actually visit my friends who live in Ontario, because <laughs> I'm not going to have time to visit them. But I'm, I'm happy to be with you guys. Second thing, real briefly, if you have a little piece of paper, jot down the answer to two questions. Don't think too hard. But the first question is, if you could be uh, a superhero or have a superpower, what would it be? And just go with your gut, whatever that is. You can be thinking about that. And uh, the second question is, you can be jotting this down. If you could swap out uh, one part of your body, which would it be? If there were one body part you thought, you know, I wouldn't mind doing an exchange on this one, going to I don't know, whatever store. Uh, you, you guys have Target around here? No, no, no. Walmart? No, you don't want Walmart. Uh, the equivalent of, of that, which body part would you say, can I get an equal or upgrade exchange? So superpower and uh, one body part. For what it's worth, I would be Spider-Man any day, hands down. I've always wanted to be Spider-Man. So let me begin this talk on the spirit of the matter by sharing two brief stories. One occurred about seven years ago. I went um, with a few friends, artist friends, out to a lake house in the middle of Texas. And uh, it was one of those just gorgeous, completely memorable experiences where you're waking up to beautiful sunrise and you're making breakfast together and you're leisurely hanging out, looking over a lake and you're having conversation. And that's the life for three or four days. And there's one day I was sitting out on the porch with a friend of mine. And uh, we were all barefoot, as one is, uh, uh, in Texas uh, most of the year. And uh, we were sitting silently, uh, enjoying the day. And, and she turned to me and said, David, you have really narrow feet. Now, I had never thought about my feet before. I mean, my feet were my feet. But I never thought my feet were narrow or, or wide or large or small. But from that day on... That's all I saw about my feet, where my feet were narrow. Every time I put my shoes on, I looked down like, well, my gosh, they are a little bit narrow. <laughs> uh, and it's just one of those things. Once somebody opens your eyes to see some part of your body you've never thought about before, that's all you see. That's the first story. The second is, uh, involves a friend of mine, Alan Fryer from Durham. Over dinner last fall, Alan shared with Phaedra, my wife and me, that he'd grown up in the Church of Christ Scientist. Now, to this comment, his, his wife interjected, that's called growing up with issues. Now, he said it was more like growing up in an alternate reality. 
He said, you know how your average kid comes crying home to his mother because he skinned his knee and how she quickly seeks to comfort him? He said, well, my mother was not like other mothers. She looked at me and said, I don't understand. Why are you crying? Founded by Mary Baker Eddy, the Christian science religion believes that the material realm is illusory. Now, more precisely, it believes that the fallen material realm is illusory. As Eddie put it once, the only reality of sin, sickness, or death is the awful fact that unrealities seem real to us humans until God strips off their disguise. Now, Alan holds up his two thumbs to us over dinner. He says, you see my thumbs? One is shorter than the other. For nine years, he had lived with an infection in his right thumb which his mother had refused to acknowledge as real. She believed the infection was only an illusion. Alan's thumb chose to acknowledge otherwise. Good friends, I tell you nothing new when I say that you and I live in a world of imperfect and broken bodies. You know this. I know this. And we each make the best of it, though perhaps often we make the worst of it. Like myself, the painful feeling that we might not be loved for a certain body part would lead us perhaps to playfully pretend that it doesn't matter. It would lead us, that is, to minimize our broken, fallen bodies or body parts. In other cases, like my friend Alan, the knowledge that no solace or remedy exists for our physical suffering often leads us to, to a secret wish to, in fact, die. It leads us, that is, to reject our bodies. So minimizing and rejecting, this is what humans have been doing with bodies, broken, fallen bodies, since the fall. Now, fine, you say, but is it really wrong to want to change our broken bodies? Haven't humans been changing their bodies for a long time? And I say, yes, you're right. We have been. And some of the alterations that we make to our bodies are of a minor sort. We change the angle of our teeth with braces, Or we change our noses, as Kim Kardashian has done, from one to another. Or we make changes to our hair, as I have done. This was a time when I was shaved, and I was the blue man for a certain time of the year, around October 31st. Um, This is when I was a cowboy for a while. This is when I was an angry postal worker. This is when I was Lennon. Uh, it's my favorite. This is when I was Keith Green. I was a big fan of Keith Green. And, uh, a friend of mine sent it to me with a verse, no less. Uh, and then this was another outfit I wore for Halloween called Dead in My Trespasses. I wanted to dress up like an idea. And so I was the idea of Dead in My Trespasses. So some of these uh, hair dues my mother has appreciated, most of them she has not appreciated, including this one. Now, other kinds of changes we make to our bodies are of a more severe and morally fraught nature. So uh, we change the value of a body that becomes physically and or mentally disabled. Or we change our sex through uh, sex reassignment surgery. Or in some cases, we go for big changes, an evolutionary upgrade. Neotropics, cryonics, cyborgs, machine phase, nanotechnology. Uh, This is the stuff that fires the imaginations of transhumanists. 
a community around the world that seeks to eradicate the problem of a mortal body altogether. Christians, it must be said, haven't fared much better in their responses to the physical body. At the extreme, we have devolved to heretical views, Gnostic for starters. At a less extreme level, we have enlisted the services of the Holy Spirit to argue for the superiority of the immaterial realm over the material one. We have believed that the Holy Spirit is responsible for, quote, spirit work, but not exactly for material work. And we have fretted about our too, too solid, fleshy bodies and perhaps wished we could be pure spirits without bodies instead. Or some might simply wish to be them, Brad and Angelina. So the focus question I wish to pose in this talk this morning is this one. Have we, in fact, read the Holy Spirit rightly in this regard? Is, quote, spiritual work necessarily opposed to, quote, material work? Might there be a better way to perceive the Spirit's relation to our physical bodies than perhaps we have often done? And what might the arts offer to this question? My answer, my thesis, is this. The Holy Spirit has everything to do with our bodies. When you think Holy Spirit, think physicality, think corporeality, and you'll be thinking biblically. If you're going to view the Spirit in the light of Christ, which I believe you and I should, then you're not looking at an escape from materiality. You're looking at the preservation, the healing, and the liberation of the material creation so that it can be what the trying God has eternally purposed for it. And what do the arts do? Well, they come along and deepen our embodied experience of life. That's the argument for the day. My task will be in three parts. One, I'll look briefly at the Holy Spirit's relationship to Jesus, specifically to Jesus' humanity. Second, I'll consider the way in which the Spirit's relation to Jesus illumines the Spirit's relationship to us, especially as it relates to our physicality, our physical bodies. And third, finally, I'll survey a few ways in which the arts enrich our embodied life. Now, for what it's worth, in these first two sections, we're going to do a bit of heavy theological lifting, so hang in there with me. First, as it is with Jesus. When we look at the data of the New Testament, we see that the Holy Spirit is actively involved at every moment of Christ's humanity. Let me draw attention to three moments in particular. One, the Spirit is present at Jesus' birth and at his ascension. In Luke 1.35, the scriptures tell us the Spirit overshadows the birth of Jesus. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. The Spirit is there at the very beginning of Christ's earthly life. But the Spirit is also there at the end. At Christ's ascension, Acts 1.9 says that a cloud hides him from his disciples' sight. Now, what kind of cloud are we talking about exactly? Now, the New Testament gives us a hint. 
This cloud at the ascension recalls the cloud that envelops Jesus at his transfiguration in Luke 9, using the very same language, which notably uses the same language that we find in Luke 1, where the Spirit envelops Mary at her conception. This language of cloud is euphemistic language for Holy Spirit. At the very beginning and at the very end, the Holy Spirit secures the humanity of the Word made flesh and of the Word ascended in resurrected flesh. That's the first point. Second, the Spirit reveals Jesus' true identity. John 16, 13 states, But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all truth. Now, what truth is that? Well, it's important to point out that it isn't a what truth. It is a who truth. The who is the person of Jesus. The Spirit is the one in, in the Gospel of John in particular who enables the disciples to perceive the Logos in fleshly form. Now, at the opening of his first epistle, John writes, that which we have heard and seen and touched, that is, Jesus in the flesh, this we proclaim to you. By what power is the early church able to perceive God in the flesh? St. John tells us by the Spirit of God. So in revealing Christ to us, the Spirit opens our eyes to see the truly human one, no less, of course, than the image of the true God. Number three, the Spirit empowers Jesus' earthly mission. In Mark 1, 10, we are told that the Spirit descends upon Jesus at his baptism in the waters of Jordan. In Mark 4, we find the Spirit driving Jesus into the desert in order to face temptation. Throughout Luke and John, the Spirit is continuously at work in Jesus' ministry, empowering His teaching as well as His works of exorcism and healing. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us that the Spirit superintends Jesus' death, while Romans and 1 Corinthians remind us that it is the Spirit who is responsible for raising Jesus from the dead and thus endowing Him with what the Scriptures call a sama pneumaticos, a Holy Spirit-energized body. In light of this pattern that we observe throughout the New Testament, then it is not too much of a stretch to say where Christ, the enfleshed one, is, there is the Spirit. Or as the theologian Eugene Rogers beautifully puts it, in the New Testament, the Spirit leads, follows, or accompanies the Son into the most intimate places, not instructively into his mind or heart, but into much messier places, paradigms of the physical, the womb, the wilderness, the garden, the grave. So when we look at the nature of the Spirit's relationship to the incarnate Christ, we see how the Spirit secures Christ's humanity, enabling the enfleshed one at every point to carry out his mission from the Father. Very much a Trinitarian endeavor. First, as it is with Jesus. Second, so with us in Christ. If this is the kind of pneumatological activity we witness in the life of Jesus, what does that imply for you and me? In what way is the Spirit active in our own humanity? Well, in every way possible. 
For our purposes here, let me focus on his work with respect to our physicality. And the key text is 1 Corinthians 15. St. Paul writes, So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a, quote, natural body. It is raised a, quote, spiritual body. Now, what does St. Paul mean here, especially in in relation to that last phrase, natural body, spiritual body? Well, as New Testament commentator Gordon Fee explains, for St. Paul, the issue is not materiality over against immateriality, which is an issue that preoccupied Greek philosophers of the time. That was not an issue that preoccupied Paul per se. The issue for Paul is one of lesser glory in relation to a greater glory. The issue is of a broken body in relation to a resurrected body. The issue is a body marred by sin over against a body that in the age to come will be capable of unmarred habitation by the Spirit of God. So when St. Paul uses the language of spiritual body, it is important for us to keep clear that he does not mean an immaterial body. He means a physical body that is fashioned by the Holy Spirit. To be full of the Holy Spirit, then, in Paul's understanding, is, among other things, to be a substantially physical person. Now, C.S. Lewis, in his novel, The Great Divorce, captures this sense so very well. The people closest to heaven, he argues imaginatively, are also the most weighty, the most deeply material. This is the consistent pattern of the Spirit throughout all of Scripture. At the very beginning, the Spirit is there hovering over the waters of creation, animating it with substantial life. At the beginning of Christ's life, He hovers over the waters of Mary's womb. At the beginning of human life, He takes dust and transforms it into a living being. At the beginning of redeemed life, He pulls the believer through the baptismal waters out of death into life. And at the end, he perfects and in Christ makes all things new, including our bodies. To sum up this whole section, to put it bluntly, the Holy Spirit is pro-physicality, not anti-physicality. Theology. And the arts. How then might the arts serve the work of the Spirit of Christ? They serve it by, at times, intensifying our embodied experience of the world, and by, at other times, helping us to be reconciled to our bodies. Let me offer three examples of what this might look like music and bodies, (coughs) eyes and bodies, mission and bodies. First, then, music and bodies. New Testament scholar Ralph Martin said once, the Christian church was born in song. Of course, he was right, and you know this. The Virgin Mary sings in response to Elizabeth's benediction. The angels sing of Christ's advent to the shepherds. 
And what does the early church sing? It sings the Psalter. The songs of David that become the songs of Christ that in turn become the songs of Christians throughout all the ages. What do saints and seraphim sing at the end of the age? They sing the words of the ancient prophet. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what does the Holy Spirit have to do with singing? I think Gordon Fee answers well again. He says, where the Spirit of God is, there is also singing. There is always singing. What I wish to propose to you here with respect to music and bodies and the Holy Spirit echoing Paul in Ephesians 5 is that when we sing, we express a pneumatological unity, that is the kind of unity that the Holy Spirit makes possible, in our bodies. Our bodies, mouth, lips, diaphragm, posture, enable us to express corporate unity, a kind of togetherness in Christ that the Spirit makes possible. But you ask, what kind of musical unity does the Spirit exactly promote? Opinions regarding the kind of church music that promotes unity has been, to put it mildly, inflammable throughout history. So, let me propose three kinds of unity that occur when Christians sing together in and with their bodies. Melody, harmony, and what I'm going to call super harmony. So, melody. This is one kind of unity. We see this kind of unity promoted in the early church, the early history of the church, and its preference for what is called monophony, or chant. That is, singing one line of notes together. We also see this kind of unity at work in Acts, where the apostles unanimously agreed to provide special care for the Greek-speaking widows. So, what does this kind of musical unity sound like? Well, I'm going to do something I have never done before, and that is the following series of illustrations with you. And I can't think of a better, more gracious community to try something out on than you guys. So just humor me. We're going to really try and do the best. So Colin, where are you? Colin, my man, come on down. Okay, so we are going to do a series of four exercises musically together. The first involves singing melody together. And we're going to take the first stanza of the hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. And we're going to take the first two lines and the last two lines. So, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, Blessed Trinity. I know it's a little bit weird. Just humor me. It's going to work. Hopefully. Uh, So, you know, since we usually uh, sing better standing, go ahead and stand with me. And... um, Don't get weirded out going from line two to line three. You're skipping to the end of the stanza. You can do this. I know you can do this. Okay, uh, ready, Colin? You want to get us a little... you. 
Uh, you notice I didn't sing because if I sing, the audio is just going to take me. <laughs> I'd rather them hear you. So I'm not going to sing, but I am going to listen. Okay, stay standing. Uh, it's also good for oxygen generation. So, uh, Okay, good. You guys great? Melodic unity. Perfect. You are so together. Harmony. This is another kind of unity. In church history, we observe this kind of unity in the music of Thomas Tallis and Charles Wesley, among others. We also see it in Peter and Paul's ministries. Their mission was a common one, to bear witness to Christ's gospel. Yet their actions operated, if you will, at different places on the musical scale. The one to the Jews, the other to the Gentiles. Thank you. I might do that every once in a while. The other, I do like that. You guys go ahead and just shoot back. If you said something like, you know, to the barbarians, I might say, no, that's not right. Uh, but, okay, so together, St. Paul and St. Peter, distinct. Now, what does this kind of musical unity sound like? Well, if you are able to sing the harmonic lines on these four lines, these four lines of, of music, uh, I invite you to sing them. So if you can't, that's fine. If you want to give it a try, you can, because it might just be caught up in the swell of very beautiful music. So if you can sing harmony on this one, this is when we're going to do harmonic unity, okay? Stay stand with me because now we're going to go up. We're going to do some super harmony. You're like, what is that? All right, what kind of unity is this? This is the kind that we see at work in Acts 2. This unity may not appear unified at glance, at first glance. Uh, folks will say, well, is this not a cacophony? Are we not hearing only a jumble of noise? Well, no, in fact, as St. Peter reminds us, we're listening to the music of the Spirit. Strangers speaking in different languages, yet speaking together of the glory of God. That is perhaps the kind of music that Pentecostals know a lot about when they sing in the Spirit. I served in the Charismatic Church. I know what that sounds like. What does this kind of musical unity sound like? Okay, this is the part that's new. Okay, I'm going to divide you into four groups, which the architecture helps me out. So right here... One group right here, group number two, group number three, and a small but mighty group number four. So you guys, yeah, that's right, that's right. You tear it up. Uh, okay, this is, y'all know what a cannon is? You know? Um, this doesn't really tell you anything. Sure doesn't translate on the audio. Whirling my fingers. Uh, okay, so we're going to do this. You guys are going to sing the Let's get you going here. You're going to sing the first line. And you're going to, let's see, you're going to sing it continuously. You're going to stay on holy, holy, holy. And what we'll do is we'll let you sing it twice. And then you guys are going to do the second line. And then you're going to sing the second line continuously. And then, and I'll, I'll sort of sing it. And then you guys will sing the third. And you guys are going to sing the fourth. I talked to musical friends of mine. They said this should work. But this is going to attempt to illustrate musically, sonically, 
the kind of music, uh, musical unity that the Holy Spirit makes possible. Here we go. Now, he's not going to be able to play all the way through, but he will give you the first notes, because it's going to be mostly acapella. sound awesome it worked i think it worked i think it worked okay wait yes give yourself a clap that's great the inaugural illustration at tyndale i will always remember this a little bit of tears in my eyes um okay stay standing because what we've done three times through is explore what musical looks like uh, musical unity looks like in our bodies what I want to do a fourth time is press the matter a bit further. We've sung together in our bodies, uh, but what might it look like for us to sing together through our bodies? What difference might it make if we held our bodies towards each other? Might it shift not only how we sing, but also how we perceive other people in relation to our own song, to our own bodies? So we're going to do the same thing, but uh, this time, uh, ma'am, uh, you, no, yes, yes, you, the blonde short, would you mind standing right there in the middle of the aisle? Okay. Uh, no, 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 I'm not, no, step up once. Okay, I am not going to make you sing solo, but, but what I'm going to do is make you the center point. You've always wanted to be the center of attention, right? Yes, okay, good, 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 good. So I want everyone to turn in a radius toward, what's your name? Maria? Brianna. Okay, turn towards Brianna. Not in adoration. Uh, that would be sacrilege. Uh, just uh, turn your bodies towards, because I want you to be able to see one another's and sense one another's bodies. Okay, you can step aside. You don't have to stay there through the illustration. <laughs> that could be awkward. Um, okay, so everybody sort of seeing others' bodies. Okay, we're going to try this again. Okay, we're going we're to start with you guys. And this time, fortissimo. You ready?
Beautiful, beautiful. Thank you. You may have a seat. It strikes me that how we hold our bodies to one another makes a significant difference in how we sing, but also how we are related to one another. And I think that's the kind of thing that Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Father are very interested in. Music and bodies. Eyes and bodies. Uh, if I started off by saying, oh, be careful, little eyes, what, we, what you see, would you know what I'm talking about? Ready? Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Okay, that's good. You guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, if I did this in downtown Toronto, people would be like, what? Okay, so uh, I asked myself the question, uh, what do we mean by careful, what do we mean by eyes, and what should we be seeing? Now, careful can go in two directions. It can be a cautionary term, a don't, or it can be a term that encourages us to see with careful attention, a do. As it relates to our bodies, what does it mean to see others' others' bodies carefully? And how might the visual arts help us to see or perhaps to re-see human bodies? In the fall of 2007, Hope Chapel, the church that I uh, served in for a number of years, invited Laura Jennings, one of its members, to exhibit artwork, which she had created at the University of North Texas. Now, the Sunday that the work first appeared in the sanctuary, I explained to the congregation that, as with all the art that hung in the sanctuary, Laura's work was not here merely to ornament our space. It was here to enable us to see the gospel afresh and to live out the gospel afresh. Just as Jesus repeatedly directed his disciples' attention to notice things that society easily ignored, so Laura's work represented to us groups we frequently overlooked. In her case, the Dalits of India and the victims of war violence. Now, one of the things about Laura's art that challenged us was its style, painted as it was in abstract expressionist fashion. The work did not yield its meaning easily. Some folks only saw strange figural shapes in vibrant colors. Some perhaps saw nothing, or at least nothing worthwhile. Some, however, did take the time to look, to look again and yet again, and to persevere with these elements of abstraction. So the question I posed to us then, and I share with you now, is how exactly did Laura Jennings' artwork form the way we saw human bodies? Let me suggest a few ways. One, by showing us pixelated bodies rather than solid ones, the art reminded us that we do not see people rightly simply by looking at them. Our sight is broken because we are sinful and it needs to be healed and retrained, and Laura's work offered us a new way of imagining others' bodies. Additionally, by bringing us experiences of suffering to our awareness, the art showed us that these were things that we could feel sad or angry about in our bodies. It also invited us to imagine what often feels impossible, and that is that God is in fact present to people's physical suffering, suffering with them, and on their behalf in Christ. 
And lastly, the art challenged us to love the poor and the needy with our own very hands and our own feet. The artwork, in short, taught us how to see human bodies as the Holy Spirit would have us see them, broken yet beloved of God. Eyes and bodies. Finally, mission and bodies. What does art have to do with bodies and mission? It goes without saying that our mission to the world is carried out of our broken bodies. Yet we also carry out the mission of Christ with the hope of a resurrected body. So we live with attention. How do the arts reckon with this tension in Christian mission? On the one hand, I think the arts can promote a reconciliation to our bodies, or at the very least, refamiliarize ourselves with our own bodies. A number of years back, we invited these dancers, Susan and Gabriel, uh, to be a part of our congregation for a weekend. They did a show, a, a modern dance show in the city. They did a workshop on Saturday. And then Sunday morning, I preached a sermon on the importance of our bodies and how dance uh, can be used to bring us into the life of God and Christ. And one of the things that I did was uh, every illustration, obviously, for my sermon involved dance. And I don't know how many of you dance as a regular thing. How many many of you say, yes, at least once a week I dance? Just raise your hand. Once a week I dance. Okay. Okay. Uh, How many of you dance during corporate worship? Is that like a a normal thing? Dance during corporate worship? Okay, the vast minority of you. Okay. So it was, I mean, that was probably the similar case for us. Most people don't dance, right? So this this was a little bit of a stretch for us. But it was so wonderful to see how Susan and Gabriel were able to work with me, we together, on behalf of the congregation and do little things where they would say, all right, everybody stand up and just sort of do like this. I mean, even this, you know, some people are like, that's kind of weird. That's kind of pushing my comfort zone. But just these little things are like, wow, I have a body. It's, it's like my life isn't just right here. My life is from here to here. And so over the course of the sermon, there was, in maybe this very small way, people becoming reacquainted with their bodies and asking themselves questions they perhaps had never asked before. And that is, is there a positive role for my bodies in the life that God has called me to? Or is it merely a neutral vessel through which I do other more important things? On the other hand, uh, the arts can become a source of hope for people who suffer bodily. Uh, there is a group called To Write Love on Our Arms. How many of you have heard of To Write? Okay, some of you have heard of that. Uh, it's a nonprofit movement dedicated to presenting hope and finding help for people struggling with depression, addiction, self-injury, which would include cutting, burning, self-mutilation, and suicide, started by uh, a Christian young man. Now, artists who have supported this work include actors like Miley Cyrus and Joaquin Phoenix, bands like Switchfoot and Evanescence. People have tattooed themselves, have tattooed their bodies in solidarity with this missional work. What have the arts done? The arts have come along and sharpened what is at stake, that is, tattoo art. The movie Kavi, how many of you have uh, heard of this one? It's well worth it. It was uh, an Academy Award nominee for Best Live Action Short, also filmed by a Christian. The film tells the story of a young boy who wants to escape from the brick kiln where he is forced to work as a modern-day slave. 
Now, beyond the film work itself, the filmmaker's goal is to help end what he calls bonded labor, which he calls a form of modern slavery. What do the arts do? The arts, in this case, expose a sin against the body for the sake of freeing real human bodies. So the arts are focusing, intensifying, and encouraging others to take action. A last example of mission and bodies. Heart Sounds International exists to help promote biblically appropriate, culturally relevant heart worship in places where Christ followers are restricted or persecuted or unknown. How many of you have heard of Heart Sounds International? I know you guys care a lot about global cross-cultural mission. Wonderful organization. So what they're doing is they're creating culturally or helping create culturally appropriate forms of Christian worship that would result in a great release of energy and passion from within these indigenous groups. Now, what results from this work is music that quite literally is in people's native tongues. I get very excited about the work that they're doing so that it is not all, you know, Chris Tomlin translated into Urdu or whatever. You know, it's helping them discover their native musical forms and native or indigenous poetical forms and helping that kind of music arise in their own tongue. Music and mission. Music and eyes, eyes and bodies, mission and bodies, three ways in which the arts invite us into a fresh experience of our corporeal life. To conclude, once your eyes have been opened to something, in my case, to my narrow foot, in your case, I don't know what it is. I don't need to know what it is. But there is a good chance that at some point in your life you thought to yourself, You know, I wish I didn't have this big nose, frizzy hair, weird thighs, whatever it is. And these are things that we actually struggle with. So the question for us as ministers, church leaders, theologians, artists, is what are we going to do about it? At what points are we going to sit down and talk about the significance of our bodies? Why has God in Christ through the Spirit given us bodies? What are they for? How can they serve the mission of Christ in the world? Well, in some cases, when you discover something about a body part that you don't like, the revelation could be no big deal. At other times, it could be a very hurtful, grievous thing. Those of us who are growing older, our bodies are breaking down. And often, that is a very intensely grievous thing. But my friends, the gospel does not leave us with mere empirical data, the fact of an imperfect body. The gospel invites us to see all things according to God's reality. And it is the Spirit who transforms our sight to see ourselves and others, our bodies and others' bodies, as broken, yes, as perhaps narrow, as perhaps too large, too small, but always as deeply beloved and capable of becoming instruments of God's own love in the world. What is the gospel for you and me today? Perhaps it is this. Whatever condition your bodies presently find themselves in, you do not have to pretend. You do not need to be embarrassed 
or ashamed of your body, nor should you be proud of your body, nor should you wish for death, as if death by itself could save you. Only Christ can. And his spirit promises to comfort those who suffer in body. But God also gives us his spirit today, even now, so that we together can enjoy, even through the arts, a foretaste of the new creation already previewed in Jesus.